everybody and welcome to the very 135th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. A podcast all about board games, except when it's not. For example, this very episode. <laughs> uh, my name is Quentin Smith and I am joined by Tom Brewster. Hello, Quentin. Hello, Tom. And today we've got something pretty special that I'm super excited about. Not least because I have to do very little work in this podcast episode. <laughs> We're going to be talking about solo RPGs. One player role-playing games. Although that's actually kind of not what these games are. Basically, these games are... Innovative storytelling experiences for just one person sat on their lonesome. And who is that one person in this episode? It's Tom. Tom, it's me. you've been sat by yourself <laughs> a lot for the last few weeks, haven't you? I've been sat in a deprivation tank with nothing but pencils and paper, forced to work and write and think about role-playing games. I uh, find this mind-blowing. Quite honestly, a year ago, before we published your thousand-year-old vampire um, review, I did not know anything about one-player RPGs. But of course, in the pandemic, who would have guessed it? They're now a thriving genre, and people are doing <laughs> absolutely fascinating things with them. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about three games, so I'm going to be quizzing Tom about them anyway. We're going to be talking about Delve by Anna Blackwell, a game about dwarves tunneling down and dying a lot. We're going to be talking about Field Guide to Memory by Jion Shim and Shingyon Kaur, uh, a Kickstarter game about, uh, I've got this hot off the presses from Tom, a game about thinking and walking and doing lots of little drawings of rats. And finally, <laughs> we're going to be closing the episode by talking about Alone Among the Stars by Takuma Okada, a game about chilling in space and being very lonely. So the first of these games that we're going to talk about is Delve, which is a solo RPG that is part of a trilogy of map drawing RPGs by Anna Blackwell. You've got Delve, a game about digging downwards, being dwarves. You've got Rise, a game about going upwards from the depths, being a horrible, evil mastermind. And you've got Umbra, a game about doing Delve, but this time it's in space. Um, <laughs> they're three map drawing games, and they all use the same sort of base uh, formula to tell a story, uh, but I'm just going to talk about Delve in this podcast. Delve is, at its most simplest, kind of easiest to compare to the PC game Dwarf Fortress, which is going to be uh, annoying for people who uh, don't want to hear about video games, and I won't talk about that, the comparisons too much, but that's the sort of experience that it's trying to give you, and it takes inspiration from that game in lots of different ways, in that you are dwarves, and you're digging down, you're making a fortress, you're making a space for these dwarves to live in, and most of the enjoyment of the game is seeing how it goes quite wrong um, or pushing the simulation around in various ways and seeing what happens as you push and pull it. Does that mean that this is a game played on a sort of single piece of paper that you're filling out and out and out? Yes, it's one. Uh, I used a one nice bit of A4 paper that at the start of the game you divide into these one inch squares, and each turn of the game has you like exploring a new one of those squares. You've got a little other piece of paper off to the side that you keep your notes on things like how many resources or trade goods or where your soldiers are. You have that off to the side, but most of the game is played on this central um, piece of paper that you have in front of you alongside a little deck of cards and some tokens to represent monsters when they crawl around the space that you've created uh in the game so i'll talk about how we actually play the game first um every single turn involves you drawing a card from the deck a 52 card standard playing card deck if it's a red card that's good 
you get trade goods and resources and you can build stuff with those later on and make your space really cool and neat. If you draw a black card, that's not as good. You get no resources and instead you get uh, natural formations or remnants. Uh, These will get added into your cave. So natural formations are things like a little river or maybe uh, some spooky stalactites or a big hole that just goes on and on forever Uh, (laughs) okay remnants are uh sometimes good sometimes bad but mostly bad uh things that your dwarves have stumbled upon uh for example i'll I'll talk about the examples later but there's all kinds of spooky stuff that you can find uh down as you go down and these things get worse as you go down so the top layer of this if you imagine this grid map the top layer as you explore there the rewards and negatives you get for exploring that layer aren't so bad but then you add numbers effectively to whatever is bad or good as you go further down if it's a bad thing it's gonna be much worse if it's a good thing it's gonna be better the further down you go so it's more risky more rewarding as you delve deeper shall i tell you about what happened in my game of death i I was so ready to ask i want to know what happened to the dwarves under your custody (laughs) the first thing okay so this is what's weird right is that Delve doesn't lay out a sort of pathway through the game. One of the core mechanics is building stuff, and it just has this big list of buildings, and you don't know if they're going to be particularly good or bad. They tell you what they do, but like you haven't got a context in which to place those effects on your first game. So my first few turns, I was like, oh, barracks sound good. I'll get some of those. Oh, a library, and I can train magical dwarves. I'll do that. And then I bought some more people to defend me. And I was going, oh, this is going well. This is easy. I'm just filling out the top layer. Now let's go a little bit deeper and see what's going on. And then (laughs) Delve decided to hand my ass to me on a plate. Because by the nature of these cards, I had an absolute mare for several turns in a row. What happened? The first thing that happened was a dwarf stumbled upon a library full of ancient magic. He went mad and I murdered him. Oh. uh, Which was quite sad. That was like, oh no, I've lost a whole person. That's going to take me ages. To, I'm going to have to spend resources to get that guy back. Oh my goodness, it got so much worse because the next thing I discovered <laughs> was a village filled with 40 frog people and they were very, very hostile. I mean, I don't know what this felt like for you to play, but I'm into hearing about this. <laughs> right, this is the thing, is that this game has that anecdotal quality that, uh, P- that PC Game Dwarf Fortress has, where it's like, you tell someone a tale, and it's like, oh, and then this happened, and this happened, and it gets weirder and wackier as stuff starts happening. Um, luckily, with this village of, I think I neglected to mention, was that previously to finding that village of 40 frog people, I found a uh, a well and it was a magical wishing well and you spent gold you chucked gold into the well and then you rolled on a table to see whether good or bad things were going to happen to you uh, luckily a good thing happened to me when i put money into the well a mysterious cloud emerged that was just full of good vibes um the good vibes cloud when i stumbled upon this village of 40 frog people turned the 40 frog people into nice 40 frog people oh now i had 40 frog friends to do my dirty work for me this is i feel like i'm torn between being like this is awesome and i sort of imagine being at school and turning around and seeing you drawing this map and i I, like and you're drawing 40 frog people and they're now your friends and i feel like i would beat you up like in the, yeah, that's the yeah that's very reasonable <laughs> it's sort of like it's a combination of this is the geekiest thing i've ever heard and this is kind of awesome which i i worry is going to be a through line through all of the solo rpgs today i think this one specifically is 
is maybe the the geekiest okay. um which sounds like an insult but i think that it's because specifically because it's pen and paper imbues it with a new uh, imaginative geekery but if you're drawing this it sounds like things are changing so are you erasing stuff i or is the is the drawing that you're that you're steadily sort of filling in getting just more and more crazy so the way that i did it is i was drawing everything in pencil uh not wanting to to sort of put ink to paper and set it in stone at any point but yeah the drawing does just get slowly crazier as it goes out and things do change but the actual formal layout of what you've built is kind of well haha set in stone in that you'll build these new caves and once you've built a cave it's kind of it's there and it might get trashed by some uh, rogue invaders that run through it but it's never gonna you know if you build a barracks it's never not going to be a barracks for the rest of the game but then so what happened afterwards is that i got these this this village of these frog people and i was like great i'm set for life uh the way that combat works in this game um <laughs> is that it sort of swaps to to turn based um so if you have if i found those frog people and they were very angry at me they would slowly walk through each room of my fortress trashing stuff as they went until they met something that also had some strength so like some warriors or mages and then you would deduct their strength from each other and then continue with the process it's incredibly simple uh, combat um so this f- village of 40 frog people i was like great i've got i don't remember their exact strength but let's say it was 40 to match them and i was like okay let's move on to a new part of the fortress and i opened up another cave in the middle of the fortress and suddenly i was full of skeletons there was a massive mass of skeletons they fought the frog people and nothing was left i was back to square one and then i was like ah oh, this is a nightmare i'm running low on resources i'm running low on skeletons i'm running low on frog people the next cave i open is full of vampires they kill every <laughs> single thing in my fortress except for one dwarf and it was at that point it was like how can this game beat me up anymore and i was like okay let's keep it nice and simple let's just dig one standard territory on the top of the map there's going to be no risk involved and it was full of demons and i was demons. at that point was like the sliding scale has got worse and worse and worse every single thing i've done has led to more and more and more death and my fortress was sort of cut short quite early mm. which was a fitting end because i was kind of being quite greedy in the early game would you uh, say that you you dug too hungrily and too deep yes but also not really, because there was a point at which I was like, right, let's ease up. But then my it all caught up with me, I think. I was like, right, let's chill out. Let's not keep digging deep. Let's just dig up back at the top. And and I was punished for that as well. <laughs> I will say that like the fact that this is two-dimensional, the fact that you're sort of like digging a cross-section of a mine, if that's if that's correct. Yes. Does make this appeal to me as somebody who who cannot draw at all. Because it's almost like a technical drawing as opposed to having to draw, you know people or emotions that's true you you can put as much or as little effort into it as you like and you're also not encouraged to draw any of the dwarves because they're so expendable (laughs) (laughs) right Um, they're literally numbers on a sheet in my game and they're represented by a two pence piece that i move around um the fortress so it it is yeah because it's a cross section it is like a technical drawing in a weird way but i some of the drawings of fortresses i've seen do get very elaborate and mine is a little bit detailed and finicky um i'll probably have it as the podcast thumbnail so you can get an idea of of what a fortress looks like uh in these games here's the thing i enjoyed my time with delve i but i wish that i hadn't have put so much effort into making it look pretty because your dwarves got dumpstered 
because everything minutes. got dumpstered right. so quickly. So it's more of like a doodling game than uh, than. But you didn't know that going in. I didn't know that going in. And also, there is a lot of... The way that this game functions is that you draw a card and then you look at a table and then you add to your map. And there are systems in this game that make you think that it's kind of more video gamey than solo RPG. I think that a lot of this is going to come down to the fact that I think I wanted to like Delve more than I did. Mm. Um, and I was thinking a lot about The Quiet Year while I was playing Delve. And I was thinking about the relationship between those two games. There are... They have a similar core in that you're building something collectively and you're drawing that thing over time. And I think that Delve is more video gamey and Quiet Year is more solo RPG. Because I think that it hinges on the relative openness of the system in the Quiet Year versus the simulation that exists within Delve. Delve has an actual combat system. It has a menu of options that you can build from that is overwhelming, but I appreciate it's there. But then you have all of that dictated by a deck of cards. And if things go badly, they go badly really, really quickly. That being said, I don't want to put Delve down too much because I really did enjoy ending up with a lovely drawing and putting pen to paper for so long was quite joyous. The thing that I wish that Delve was more was a game that was more flexible in when stuff started to go wrong and having more ways of mitigating stuff going wrong when you're really digging what's happening in your story um the only the fact that it's a simulation the fact that you're also dependent on this deck of cards means that if you don't have enough resources to do something you can't do it and then if you get bad luck on another draw you then die and that tells a good story it tells you a story that like you know it was doomed to failure you struck earth and then soon your flame was snuffed out but i wanted to spend more time in the world i wanted to spend more time drawing and maybe what i should have done was just done a little bit of cheating and just said actually i didn't find that <laughs> and erased it but then that becomes a different sort of experience. What kept you from wanting to go back in a second time and start a new dwarf community? That's a good point. I think possibly the fact that going in again would involve setting up the infrastructure, the starting infrastructure again. There's some things that are almost necessary to your survival. You know, you need to build a barracks and a hospital and you need to build this, that and the other. And this idea of getting the ball rolling again wasn't quite something that I was into having just finished drawing and inking this relatively elaborate map. Mm. Um, but I think if you play it fast and loose, it could be a very different experience. And I think that there is deep down in there a a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> There's achievements and challenges and things that you can try and set yourself. There's optional expansions. There's another optional expansion that adds individual IDs for each of your dwarves. <laughs> so you get a wow. more of a sense of community about things. Um, there is an end goal. It's finding this crystal at the bottom of the deck, which involves pulling jokers, I think. Um, and there is content in the RPG. And there's another couple of games in the series. But I think, for me, I prefer my solo RPGs less of a simulation and more of a wobbly storytelling experience that you can poke around in strange ways. And on that note... <laughs> The second game we're going to talk about in this roundup is Field Guide to Memory by Jion Shim and Xing Yin Kuo, a game that is very difficult to explain and very different to traditional solo RPGs. So much so that I don't want to actively spoiler parts of this game. There are twists and turns uh, that are present in this thing in case anyone wants to play it themselves. I'll try and avoid 
any spoilers and I'll mark them when they might happen. And that's really strange for content that's often player generated in RPGs. Like the idea of having a spoiler for a solo RPG is strange to me because you're the one creating the content. But in Field Guide to Memory, there is a core plotline that exists within the world of the game. There are institutions and people and reveals that are set in stone. So I'm going to try and keep things a little bit misty. Uh, and that's also compounded by the fact that at the time of recording, I haven't finished playing this game. It's a 20-day arc that you play in real time. I'm up to day 14 out of 20 at the time of recording, and I'm going to finish it soon. So Field Guide to Memory reminds me of those writing challenges to spur creativity where you just do a little something each day, but that's how it presents and then quickly becomes more than just writing. Uh, at the start of the game, you create this sort of loose character who has a relationship to Dr. Elizabeth Lee. She has recently been pronounced dead after being missing for several years, and you are in the process of trying to recover her work from my favourite organisation in games ever, the Institute for Theoretical Evolutions, um, <laughs> who are being strangely cagey about letting you see the archives. That's the setup of the first game. And immediately right off the bat things like the character sheet are really joyous uh the character sheet that you write is a application to the little citizens science club i think that's the name of the organization it's got lots of little sweet drawings and ephemera that you can uh kind of get involved with sorry i, I want to clarify this because this is the one thing i know about this game your character sheet is is this application to like a local zoological interest club when your character was a kid right? yes and that keeps coming up uh throughout the game there's lots of uh children in this game who are part of this science club that was set up by dr elizabeth lee as well i just have not seen that before in an rpg the idea that you know it's like who's your character and then you're given a sheet and it's like you have to write your character's name when they were young you have to write did your <laughs> yeah. character have a kid when did a pet when they were young it's like it's it's such a fascinating exercise it's it's telling you to to tick a box of like what kind of pet you had did you have dog cat or snake it's so cute uh, it's very very cute um then when so that's the character that's the character creation and then the game starts proper with your first day of prompts where you have this game sort of starts with lots of dreams of dr elizabeth lee your relationship to the researcher um and her and your relationship to her research has been locked away by this institute and that makes up the first two prompts you describe a dream and then you write a very angry letter about how you can't get access uh to this research and those two halves are sort of what makes up the whole game. This sentimental positive relationship that's then being suppressed by a vast uh, and unknowable bureaucracy. Um, and I think that that first part is where Field Guide to Memory sinks itself in as an RPG, where your own personal feelings become reflected on the world of the game as much as the game itself becomes real. <laughs> okay. Um the next two days are great examples of this as well. Days two's prompts are in reading an obituary and then your character has this gut reaction in reading the obituary that they've missed so much out and then you reflect on your relationship to Lee and you flesh it out more. And then days, day three's prompts really made me laugh because they start with telling you to do some exercise and have a glass of water. <laughs> um, and that, it just made itself so clear that this game wants to transplant itself into your life as much as it wants to be something that you just do when you have some spare time and you want to have a bit of fun 
And then the next few days, it becomes more and more connected to the real world. You have to press some leaves. You go on a walk and you map out your route. You draw imaginary wildlife while you're out there. Like, this is the first game I've played where I got too cold while playing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very sweet the way that this game has this admiration for the natural world. And it wants you to go out into it. And it wants you to live the game as much as it wants you to play it, which is, you know, I think what's really sweet is looking at the hashtag on Twitter and looking at the Kickstarter updates and seeing how people have brought this game to life in their own way. I was quite bad at that <laughs> um, because the way that I took notes was not in the gorgeous journal scrawlings that people were doing, but was very bullet pointy and efficient <laughs> yes so for full disclosure i was really excited to play this but was quite alarmed because um the community that this is that this comes from is sort of it's not quite right to say that they're like more interested in crafts but there is a craftiness to yes the people who made this game and the people who are playing it which kind of threw me because you know if it's it, the, with Phil Go to Memory, you're not sort of just writing entries. It's you're, you're kind of collecting stuff that you print out that you can mm. sticker into this book. Like you all, it's closer to a scrapbook than it is a diary, in my understanding. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Like, and so many of the emails would end with these pictures of sort of inspiration that the designers have lying around this ephemera and this crafted stuff that they want you to look at and bring you further into this world as a tangible thing and encourage you to make your own in relation to it. I think it rewards putting that extra effort in as well. Like it's definitely a game that the more you want it to be in your life, the more it is. The more you make it physical, the more it becomes that. Do you know what I yes. mean? Yes, <laughs> and we should... So a thing we should point out now is that um, this was a game that was originally designed to be played um, in real time at the same time by all of the players. Mm. So Field Guide to Memory was a Kickstarter and you could at high levels not just receive sort of daily prompts from the designers, which is the game you're describing, Tom, but you could receive bundles of sort mm. of props and and items, like being mailed physical packages relating to... Um, the game to sort of draw you more into the world um, yeah. but when we're talking about um, crafting an ephemera we should also mention that live right now is the next game by um, ooh, I know at least one of the designers um, possibly both of them and this is called Amending this is on Kickstarter right now if you listen to the podcast soon but it involves um, a map and then you're actually you're not just marking your path on this map that you receive from the designers you are sewing a kind of dotted line to represent um, a path. I, I've only, um, I haven't explored the Kickstarter fully, so I could be getting this wrong. But I believe, <laughs> but the, but sewing something into a map. This this ties into what we talked about with Thousand Year Old Vampire as well. Solo RPGs can be so meditative and so mindful, and mm. it's amazing seeing designers, you know, like you described in Field Guide to Memory, touching leaves, or in their next game, you know, sewing rather than just drawing a line. You spend more time in this world. You're using more of your skills and more of your senses and i think that's that's fascinating and such a great way to make the most of the fact that these are one player games they're one player and they're inherently very physical and inherently very made they're not something that mm. arrives to you complete they're something that you complete yourself <laughs> um which is a really i think more than any other rpg field guide to memory is that is something that you embellish with as much or as little effort as you want to. <laughs> um, but the more you put in, the more you get out. It's fascinating. I think that because 
the call of RPGs is often to live within the world onto display and to choose your path through an exciting adventure. And Field Guide to Memory is not that at all, because it's a story that happens in front of you, and the differences between players are purely in how they relate to that experience that the game is giving to you. That's the choose your own adventure. It's not It's not like, go on this quest, choose where you go on the quest. It's like, the quest is happening. How do you feel about it? Well, we do. Um, there, there are many different interpretations and schools of design with RPGs, but, you know, an RPG is often, it's just as often as it is this broad, freeform experience, um, a games master, I mean, especially if they're an old school games master, will have a very specific set of story beats to guide you through. Mm. They will know what the beginning, middle and end of the story is. And their job is actually not to give the players total freedom, but to give them total freedom to overcome obstacles while actually shepherding them through a set of very strict story gates. You know, so yes, a, a solo RPG can be a thousand year old vampire where, you know, anything can happen and it's all about your creativity. But it's nice to see um, people... Uh, like the designers of Field Guide to Memory, um, creating that more crafted story in which it's mm. it's more like, like you say, yeah, it's how you react to the story as opposed to you telling the story yourself. Mm, yeah, absolutely. In terms of actually playing Field Guide to Memory yourself, we've got a kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is that Field Guide to Memory's assets are entirely digital. So for once, Shut Up and Sit Down isn't going to sell something out and you can go and find it. Bad news is you, I don't think you can find it uh, right now because the designers have not yet uploaded it to their itch.io page um, where you'll be able to purchase it diddly. 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 (laughs) However, um, amending, uh, as I say, is on Kickstarter right now for another six days on the um, the day that we're releasing this podcast. Um, And I, I actually think I might back it. I might back Ooh. it. I might back it at the $50 level because I can't draw, but oh baby, I can sew. Or, you know, <laughs> I can I can certainly push a needle through a piece of cloth over and I over. I can't wait to see. I, I can't wait to do this exact podcast, but you've made a scarf that you're going to show me on Zoom. I can't wear uh, that scarf. Well, this is the, this is, I, should we reveal that? The, the, the header image for amending this, RP, this sewing RPG shows that once someone has completed their cloth map, they're wearing it around their neck. As a little <laughs> scarf. I can't do that. I don't think it would look good on me. Um, just going to say. Dare it. to dream, Quinns. Dare to dream. Next up, from a game about feeling good in nature to a game about being lonely in space. Tom, would you like to tell us about Alone Among the Stars? Hello, hello, alone among the stars by Takuma Okada is a game about chilling in space and being incredibly lonely. (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. Um, This is easily the simplest out of these games. It's very, very loose. Uh, It is a game that takes no time to set up. You barely have to read the rules, and it is purely a game of describing and evoking and having a little think. There are four pages of rules in this game. You need absolutely nothing but a deck of cards and one dice. Uh, when you start the game, you roll a dice and you place cards on the table face down equal to the number you rolled. Roll a five, five cards face down. That is the number of interesting things that are on the current planet your explorer is visiting. <laughs> uh, which I think is hilarious when you roll a one. It's like, sure, there's one it's feature, it's massive, yeah. but there's one cool bird and it's out there somewhere. So once you have placed those cards face down, you will then roll a dice for each card, uh, revealing what's on the other side. So you roll the dice, if you roll a one or a two, whatever's on the other side is arduous to get to. <laughs> if, it's a, <laughs> yep. if it's a three or a four, you suddenly stumble upon it. Or if it's a five or a six, you see it while you're resting. 
and then the suit and number of the card is what the discovery is. Diamonds represent living beings, uh, clubs are immobile forms of life like trees and ferns, uh, the hearts are ruins, and the spades are things like clouds and weird rocks and stuff like that, natural phenomena. Um, and then each number, uh, each the actual value of the card, is sort of what that thing is or where it is or what it's doing. Like, a king is that thing is floating in the air, a seven is that it's near a volcano, or a three is by a gentle river. So each one of these cards, you're getting fragments of information, but what the thing, that are sort of around the thing, but what the thing is, is completely up to you. Um, so for some actual examples of planets that I went to, I went to a desert planet with just two cards, one that was a rock formation that looked a little bit too man-made to be entirely natural, but so eroded that I couldn't tell, and a single solitary creature that perched on the structure and just stared at me as I explored and then left. Um, I went to a planet that was just one card. It was just a horrible shade of mustard yellow that stretched on for ages, and there were some lights that were too far away for me to bother going to. Wow. Uh, I went to a ringed, icy forest planet where this arduous hike through forests of improbably shaped trees led me to a cave that had a warm lake full of living plants and glowing ferns. And each one of these planets you go to, you explore, you turn over these cards, you can give it a name if you want, a name or a number, and then you just leave and you go on to the next planet and you hope that something different is there. And I think that I really deeply enjoy this kind of solo RPG. I think that I like these games that have very minimal rules that produce something hugely evocative and clear. The RPGs that have a direct thematic purpose or story to tell. And Alone Among the Stars wants to tell you a story of quiet isolation and gentle exploration. You know exactly how long you will spend somewhere, you know how much there is to see, and then you move on. And your time on each planet is incredibly fleeting because the prompts are very, very short and very, very open. So the game is very prepared to let your mind drift. It doesn't know what it wants you to feel, so you're sort of free to feel it. <laughs> mm. um, I think that some people might think, look at the four pages and uh, call it like underdesigned, right? But I think that it completely depends on what you want out of a solo RPG. Like, so far these games have been on sort of a sliding spectrum, but there's a sort of another branch of solo RPGs that lots of people suggested I play. There's a game called uh, Iron Sworn. I've not played it, but I couldn't imagine anything worse. <laughs> Um, it's a big, thick book that is heaving with rules and complexity, tables and pages. I'm not about that. That's not what I want in my RPG is, is this vast simulation experience. I want something that's minimal and relaxing and doesn't involve me thumbing through huge books. And I think that talking about these games is sometimes difficult and slippery because what we normally talk about, board games, have to be played in this relatively controlled environment. Um... You know, you will be, when you're playing a board game, you will play it at a table with people. There will be dice and boards and cards involved. There is a very set way of, a set experience that kind of is common to all board games. I think that solo RPGs are uniquely imbued with energy by the player and who is playing the game and where and when they are playing it. That's what's going to affect the physical texture of the game itself the most. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Is that sounding kind of crazy? No, uh, no, not at all. Uh, please keep going. But like to bring that back round, right? Like I play these games at 11 p.m. at night at my desk with one lamp on and my monitor illuminating my face with like some ambient music on. Uh, the rest of the household is in bed. 
um and it's a very mellow and chill environment i think that imbues all of the solo rpgs i play with a sort of reflective melancholy and alone among the stars takes that impulse and it just runs with it whatever impulse you're feeding in will be what produces what, what comes out of it yes. if you were in a buoyant and uplifted mood if you were like feeling sort of full of wonder at the world because you were just ecstatic the game would take on a whole different tone it's a game that's so simple that it it, it reflects back at you if that makes sense yeah no it does um, and i think the what you and i have as the members of shut up and sit down who've been most interested in forging into solo rpgs i think we've both been thrown by you'll play one that's really relaxing and then you'll assume they're relaxing and then that can really mess up your mental state if you then sit down to play a different solo rpg like <laughs> when i tried to play field guide to memory and it, it it almost felt like homework when it's like oh hang on i need to print something out i need to write a letter i need to put yes. my address on the letter oh, are you kidding and that's fine, but equally, it, it can be such a curveball when something even just tells you to draw something if you don't enjoy drawing. And yeah, I think yeah. it freaks me out that I've become quite disconnected from drawing and writing and doing things physically. <laughs> mm. Like that's what I get a weird sense of whenever I play these games. That is, I feel like a sort of like doubt at the back of my mind. That's like, man, I really don't spend enough time in the world of the physical. <laughs> yeah um and that's a weird a weird thing to get out of these games but i think that they are fundamentally trying to reconnect you with the acts of physically writing of drawing of producing something that exists tangibly that is true the artifacts that you do end up producing when playing solo rpgs i find really joyous like yes you know, so you know, i have kept all of the character sheets from all of the pen and paper rpgs that i played throughout my youth because I can't get rid of them because they're so they're such totemic objects. They're so exciting. Mm. It's like, you know, oh, I remember being this character and it's all crunched up and pencil whipped because it's been to so many different houses. <laughs> but it's it's a, it's not perfect. It's a character sheet. It's not actually a, a perfect way to access the adventures you've had. But the artifacts you get playing one-player RPGs, whether it's your vampire's journal in Thousand-Year-Old Vampire or the map from Delve or the beautiful scrapbook in Field Guide to Memory or, or whatever it is you produce in a, <laughs> alone, alone Among the, scar, the Stars, your sort of travel journal, those are like... Those are your adventures written down. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and coming away from a game experience, even if it is a little arduous, with that object is really cool. I really like that. And, and and rewarding at the end of it like it, exactly it's, it, being able to you know i'm looking at stuff i've got on the desk next to me i've got the journal that i use for thousand year old vampire and i've got my massive delve fortress all inked and nice um and i've got my little notebook that i was using for alone among the stars and i've got my semi-destroyed one from uh field guide to memory and yeah they they, they spark joy quince <laughs> you know how the the easy comparison to make is how many people when they finished pandemic legacy or risk legacy kept the board oh, as, yes. as an artifact of their adventures but that's what solo rpgs produce reliably every mm. time yeah absolutely um and that's 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 very cool and i can't wait to see what uh, what the this genre of i mean even one player role playing games isn't quite right because we've got map drawing games and creative mm. writing prompts and it's so much more than just role playing what we've got really is solo games that think beyond the limitations of being a solo board game or a solo card game they can be mm. anything and that is so exciting i think this genre is going to produce some absolute storming hits uh in the next uh i was gonna say next few years but actually i think it's going to produce hits for the rest of my life whoa how about that for a hot take i was gonna go uh let's give it up for solo rpgs well we can do that too yeah 
Thanks, solo RPG. I just heard they're not really RPGs. What the hell? Stop it. Stop it. It was perfect. Thank you very much for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, everybody. Uh, We are Shut Up and Sit Down. I have forgotten how to end the podcast. No, you know what we should end the podcast with? Because I'm going to try and... Listeners at home are going to try and do this more. We will be back next week with a podcast about Anno 1800, the board game, and Stroganov, the board game. You, so okay. if you're into... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, look, I, I like what you're doing. I like that you're preparing the people for the next episode. It would be better if either of those two games sounded like they weren't the most boring board <laughs> game. Tell people why they should be excited about Anno 1800 and Stroganov. Well, I guess they'll be excited about Anno 1800 because it's got industry and a bit of colonialism. You're bad at this. It's Stroganov it's the- because you can murder uh, things that look like cats and sell their skins okay okay i per- that's not bad i personally would have said that anno 1800 is from the designer of brass and that stroganov is from the designer of gugong so those are two and games and Teutonica. and ooh, and, and koga the- really koga wait the designer of gugong is the designer of you need to tell me more about board games we need to end this podcast so you can t- t- teach me who designs what thank you very much for listening to the shut up to podcast everybody we'll be back next week Bye.